Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, how renewable can we really be? Did you know that the reason the global standard length for a fire hose is 22 metres long is because the shed in Yorkshire where they were first made was 23 metres long? Did you also know that for the last decade, over 300 tonnes of old fire hose have been saved from a fate of landfill and made into luxury accessories? Cressy Westling is changing the world one old fire hose at a time. With society somewhat in an environmental rut, Wesling and her team intend to transform eco-efficiency around the globe. From cleaning up our streets to reducing climate change, Cressy believes in a cleaner and more sustainable future for us all. In the UK, it's estimated that 16 million aluminium cans and 16 million plastic containers are littered in public spaces every year. Before you know it, we'll be swimming in waste. To find out what Cressy and her team are doing to tackle this, then look no further. Don't drop that Coke can. Have a listen to this. My road to becoming an environmental entrepreneur is like a long story, but it's also a very short story. The long story is that I grew up in Canada and I was camping every weekend in the Rocky Mountains and it was amazing and it was beautiful. And then suddenly I was living in Hong Kong and I went to see, I went to a talk very much like this. And there was a marine biologist there that talked about how Hong Kong didn't have sharks like it should have sharks because the untreated sewage of 7 million people was just going straight into the sea. Um, and I remember thinking, why is that happening in an incredibly wealthy city-state that has enough money to treat its sewage? And then when I moved to the UK in 2004, I set up a business there, an environmental business. Um, it was a biodegradable packaging business. It was in early 2000s. To give you an idea of how ahead of its time was, the first container load of biodegradable packaging I brought to the UK biodegraded on the way here. So it was very much ahead of its time. Um, but I, I, I moved on because that company was clearly not going to work. And when I came to the UK, I thought, I have to do something that's completely aligned with the way I, I want to live in the world and what I see as being important in the world and what I'm obsessed with. Because when you're running a company, it has to be something that you're passionate about or you're not going to get up every day and do it. And I'm obsessed with garbage. I'm obsessed still with sewage. We will get back to that, I promise. So I started going to, this is before you could Google ONS data and find out how much waste we produced, what type of waste we produced. Now you can get some of that data, it's still not perfect. But at the time, the first figure I came into contact with was that we produced 100 million tons of waste a year in the UK, and that was going to landfill. So this isn't counting the stuff we were sending to France to incinerate. We've now since built our own incinerators, woohoo. But 100 million tons was a, was a big figure for me. It didn't make sense to me. It was inconceivable. So I started going to landfill sites and hanging out and trying to get to grips with what that figure actually meant. You know, what did it look like in real time? And I started to see flows of material coming in that were really, really fascinating. Of course, there's, you know, burst bin bags filled with nappies and tennis rackets and the chaos of the consumer. But there was also huge flows of material that were coming in directly from industry that were clean and that were eminently reusable. You know, we talk a lot now about single-use plastic, but a lot of what goes to landfill or incineration in this country is never been used plastic. It's the industrial offcut that has never seen the light of day. That's a brand new material that is also recyclable, but it's only 400 pounds a ton 
to put into a landfill site. So if you have a very low-density waste, it's incredibly cheap to still landfill it. And that's almost 16, 17 years later. So I was looking at this 100 million ton a year problem going, holy crap, literally, holy crap, what am I going to do about this? And I didn't think I could solve a problem of that size at that time. So I thought I have to narrow my focus and find something specific and something niche. And that is when I saw my first fire hose and I fell in love with it. Because this is what I saw. I went to Croydon, which is where all fire hoses go to die in the UK. There's a team of 10 largely retired fire service personnel, and they will analyze a hose, they will see if they can repair it. If they can't repair it, it goes to landfill. Also, it goes to landfill if it reaches the end of its health and safety life, which is 25 years. So in London and the Southeast, we've got about three tons a year that naturally die every year because they reach the end of their 25 years. But you also have about 10 tons a year in a bad year. So I have now this really odd relationship with catastrophe. The worse things are in London, the more raw material supply I have. It's very bizarre. So we started collecting fire hoses just for the sake of it. On the first day that I met the fire brigade, I made one promise. I said, look, if we do anything cool with this ever, 50% of the profits will go to you. But I had no idea what we were going to do with it. The first idea I had was actually to make roof tiles until I went back to the British Library and learned that if we'd turned fire hose into roof tiles, they would have been A, flammable, because fire hose, believe it or not, is flammable. If you're not running water through it, it will alight. Um, and if you put it on a roof for 10 years, it will get cracks and it will um, basically leak. So leaky flammable roofs, that would have been a disaster. So I did a lot of research into what nitrile rubber is. I went to the factory in Yorkshire where it's made. Fire hose like this, which is urban fire hose, this is now the global standard for city fire hoses, was invented in Yorkshire. And the reason that the average fire hose is now 22 meters long is because the people in Yorkshire who invented it had a shed that was 23 meters long, and that was the first place they ever cured a fire hose, and that's now the global standard for the length of a fire hose, which is very bizarre. But I was researching what you could do with nitrile rubber. What is its heating point? What is its melting point? And I think this is where we started to really develop like a design philosophy, because not only do I want to solve environmental problems, but I want to fall in love with them. I want to understand every single aspect of them, because that's the only way for me to work out what the next best possible life is for this material. So we start with this, then we research it, then I discovered this amazing two things at the same time. One, that nitrile rubber has been used by the luxury industry for decades. In fact, that sort of Louis Vuitton brown with gold that a lot of people are familiar with, it's not leather, it's been nitrile rubber for a long time, and fire hose is a more expensive version of the same material. So I thought, oh, I've got this luxury material. Then I started looking at the luxury industry as a, as a bystander, as someone who didn't really know much about it and didn't really care about it. And I discovered a report that was commissioned by the WWF, not the wrestlers, but the wildlife people. And they found that in the luxury industry, this is, this is, you know, this is a 20-year-old report, the commitment to planet and people, if you were going to score all the luxury companies, no one would score above a C+. So I thought, here I've got this beautiful material, and I've got a failing industry. We can disrupt that. And the first thing that we made were belts. It took us five years to make a bag like this, because it is actually a very difficult material to, to deal with. No manufacturer would work with us, because it's very 
at the luxury end, actually quite snobby, and people didn't want to work with post-industrial rubber. So we had to learn to sew, well, I say we, Elvis learned to sew, and uh, we started making products ourselves, we started developing manufacturing techniques ourselves, and for the first seven years, all of the, mater- all of the products were made exclusively by us. And it just grew. But it didn't grow just because it was Firehose. It grew because we were giving 50% of the profits to charity. So that was a, a, a promise that we kept. And what was really interesting about that is, that is that a lot of people think, oh, the 50% is a lot. And actually, I don't think 50% is very much. Because from day one, we had 66,000 people. That's how many fire service personnel there are in this country who were behind what we did. And that's just the people who are in the fire service. Then there's their friends and their families. And there's websites like uniformdating.com where people sign up so that they can date someone in the police force or in the fire service. So this this is a group of people who has fans all over the world. And suddenly those fans became brand fans, not because we were doing great, wonderful marketing, just because we were giving, just because we were sharing. By 2010, we had solved London's fire hose problem because we were collecting it all, we were using it all, we were transforming it all. By 2010, we were the largest corporate donor to the firefighters' charity. And that wasn't because we'd set out to do anything other than just rescue the material. But it gave us a little bit of an ego. We were like, okay, what problems can we tackle now? So I'd obviously been going back to the landfill sites the whole time, looking for other material problems. And one that really caught my attention was leather waste. I read a UN study that said, we, we waste about 800,000 tons of post-industrial leather every year. And that's because a cow hide is shaped like this. Companies cut out the shapes they want. The rest falls to the cutting room floor and gets abandoned. So instead of designing products, because from three tons a year to 800,000 tons a year, it's a big leap. Instead of designing products, I decided to come up with a different way of designing and this was the brief that I gave to Elvis. You know, this, if, you, if you cast your memory back, I mean, most of you now will have heard of the circular economy. In 2010, some people were talking about it, but nobody was designing for it. And this was the brief that we developed. We wanted leather waste to become this, because I didn't want all the leather waste, all 800,000 tons of it, to come to me. I wanted the other companies that produced it to be able to solve that problem where they were. So we came up with exactly this. Well, Elvis did, because he's the product designer. Um, We came up with three shapes that you could interlock together to make whole new hides. And rugs, I don't know, not particularly interesting, let's say. But what's interesting about this rug is that you can take high-traffic pieces and move them to low-traffic areas. If one piece gets destroyed because your dog chewed it, you can replace that. You don't have to replace the whole rug. If you move to a smaller flat, you can take it apart and make two rugs. If you don't want a rug at all anymore, you can take it apart and you can make cubes, which aren't really that interesting either. These work as doorstops, but it proves you can work in three dimensions. If you don't like your cubes anymore, you can take that apart, you can upholster a chair. If you don't like the upholstery anymore, you can take that apart and make a bag. So instead of this leather having one life, it has multiple lives. And the first company that noticed this solution was uh, actually Burberry, and we formed a partnership with them in about 2017 to scale up our solution to solve their leather waste issue. Which is, you know, I was talking about solving a problem of 800,000 tons. Burberry is 7,000 times larger than we are as a company. So it was an interesting challenge to work 
to work with them. And we have developed a, a great partnership over the years. But the one thing that we really kept with with our system, Rescue, Transform, Donate, was that we always will maintain to give 50% of our profits to charity. And in the case of the leather, it was a little bit harder to come up with something that had the right synergy because Firehose, the Firefighters Charity, it works, it makes sense. But with leather, we actually sent out a newsletter to a lot of our supporters and said, what do you think we should do? Does anyone have any ideas for charity? And the, the one that came back the most was people thought we should support bovine TB um, which is okay, but from a, at that point, I had developed some marketing skills, and I didn't think I could sell bovine TB as the um, as the donor. I met the then CEO Megan at an event, and this is a charity called Barefoot College. It was started in the 70s in India, and the whole point behind it was to train mothers and grandmothers to be solar engineers. And you might think that's a leap from leather, but actually, we have this real relationship between cows and climate change. So it does kind of make sense. But it's also about women's empowerment. It's about education. It's about getting people out of lift, like it's about people getting themselves out of poverty and creating livelihoods and, and, and sustainable livelihoods and sustainable communities. And in the first year of working in this way, we thought we'd be able to generate one scholarship. We were able to generate three. And the first three women that we supported all went from Guatemala to India. They'd never left their region, the Ixil region of Guatemala. They went to India, they became solar engineers, they went back to Guatemala, and instead of just setting up their solar infrastructure for their community, they also set up a, co a coffee collaborative, which is now a B Corp like we are. And we have just started importing coffee from Guatemala to sell in the UK. So this, these three women that were our first ever beneficiaries within a few years, have become effectively business partners. So we feel like this model of giving really works. This is the project that I started just before the pandemic because when you're a waste junkie, basically you just keep going back for more and more and more again and again and again. And something that always annoyed me about what we did was the fact that our hardware was something we bought. Vast majority of luxury companies buy their hardware from a few small group of Italian factories. So I did not make this belt buckle. But I wanted, and I wanted to make my own hardware, but I wanted to make it in, let's say, an Elvis and Cressy waste. So that meant using a waste and only using renewable energy in order to do it. And I discovered that in the, through some research that in the UK, we litter 16 million aluminium cans every year into our public spaces, which is a problem because if you add that 16 million cans with the 16 million plastic containers that we litter, just, this is just drinks containers, okay? That results in the death of Something, something between three and four million small mammals because they're crawling into these containers, they're crossing roads, they're getting hit by cars, they're getting stuck. So it's not just litter, it's kind of murder. So I wanted to do something about these cans, but also the cans were not just the problem, the littered cans, because we cherish this material so little, because we don't have a national waste strategy, because, because we don't have a deposit system. We also throw two billion cans a year into the wrong bins so they don't get the chance of being recycled. So it's a real issue that we have in the UK with aluminium. So I thought, why don't we sort of disrupt the failed recycling complex and come up with something new and a little bit different and something that was cheap and something that was accessible. 
Um, I thought there would be a 3D printer that we could just chuck metal cans in one end and get hardware out the other end. But in the UK, if there's one thing we do have, it's experts, absolutely brilliant people at lots of universities. And you know what? You can Google their studies, you can read their journals, you can call their landlines, and you can pick their brains. All of this is free if you're friendly. But I found five or six people who knew everything about 3D metal printing, and they told me it was 10 years away and it was going to cost 350,000 pounds. So I didn't want to wait. I asked them what I should do instead, and they said, why don't you make a, you know, why don't you try making a solar forge? There wasn't a solar forge. So we put a team together at Queen Mary University, and over the course of the pandemic, we developed a solar-powered microforge in order to take aluminium cans, turn them into hardware. And we've decided to share that IP, so we are open sourcing it. And that doesn't mean that I want everyone to make buckles out of aluminium cans. That means that I want anyone in the world who needs heat in their manufacturing process to be able to adapt what we've designed. So our solar-powered forge can be built with less than 1,500 pounds. We've already got a group in South Africa that have shaved that to 1,000 pounds because they've been a bit more inventive with batteries and things like that. And we just want this solution to spread because in the 10 years we've got to fix climate change, I don't see the point in IP, which is maybe weird to hear from an entrepreneur, but I don't see the point in it. This is our business plan. It really is just this. We don't have a document with SWOT analysis or market analysis. Um, it's just this. It's just the values and the intention that underpin what we do. Probably the most, well, there isn't one thing that's more important than the other. We're always trying to achieve multiple positive objectives, so it isn't enough to just rescue fire hose and give half of the money away. We have to be powered by renewable energy. We have to create apprentices, apprenticeships for local young people. We have to be manufacturing all of our own products ourselves and control our supply chain so that we make sure everyone is paid well. So multiple positive objectives is one thing. The other thing I think is really crucial to us is that we make business decisions like any other company. Is this going to wash his face? Is this going to work? Are we the best team to do this? But the last question we ask ourselves before we go ahead is, is this going to make the world better for other people's grandchildren? And if the answer is yes, then we do it. And if the answer is no, then we don't. And I think that's a really fun way to make business decisions because everyone thinks sustainability is really complicated. And I don't think it is at all. Because if you ask yourself this question, it takes selfishness out of the equation because it's not about you and your family. And it also ensures long-term thinking. And long-term thinking is always what's going to be better for the environment. 410 or 100,000, this is probably the only time you'll hear me get excited about money. If you, if you put a ton of leather waste in the ground, it will cost you 410 pounds. That's the gate fee, that's the landfill cost. If that comes to me instead, we can generate 100,000 pounds of revenue. So please forget everything you've heard about the circular economy when it says that a ton of textiles is only worth 3,000 US dollars. It's only worth 3,000 US dollars if we forget to be creative, if we forget to be interesting, if we forget to look at the world in a different way. You know, my goal is to maximize the value of this material so we can achieve the maximum amount of good. And particularly when it comes to a partnership with a company like Burberry, it's the only way to change the dial and change their perception of their own waste, because the CFO of that company now has to look at the millions of pounds that they're wasting. 
We're one of the founding B Corps in the UK, uh, one of the first 15. We're also a certified social enterprise. Um, and you'll see the word regenerative there because this is very much the future of Elvis and Cressy. When we talk about sustainability, if we just want to sustain things from where we are, we're flatlining right now. Sustaining something at this level, to me, is a failure. If we want to be really amazing and creative and wonderful, we have to be net regenerative. And Elvis and my response to that was to really get our own hands dirty. So also in the pandemic, along with the Solar Forge, we bought this farm. Um, it's a very derelict farm. It's a degraded pasture that was used as a turf cutting business and also a pot growing operation, we've subsequently learned, which is why one of the floors collapsed in one of the buildings, which is really interesting. But the whole goal with this site was not to go to it with preconceived notions, but it was to go to it to ask it what it wanted to do and what the best thing to do there would be if we wanted to have a regenerative agricultural project. We took loads of advice, met loads of mentors, did unbelievable amounts of soil sampling. And now we have a very detailed plan. What we're going to be doing in the spring of next year is plant 11,668 vines. We'll be making the first ecological outcome verified wine in the UK, which fits very nicely with the other luxury goods that we sell. Um, we're also doing holistic planned grazing with sheep, which is a fascinating way to bring, re regenerate the soil and bring soil health and to avoid having to mow. Um, so we've got all of these grannies, these really old sheep. They basically come to our, to our site to live out their retirement and uh, have lots of delicious grass. But I think, to me, the most important thing that we've done there takes us right back to sewage. The first thing we constructed was a wetland system in order to treat all the wastewater on site. So all of our human, human manure will be developed by turning our poo into vermicompost, wonderful. But all of our liquid waste goes through a constructed wetland, which is a series of ponds, huge amount of biodiversity, huge amount of planting, the final pond you can bathe in, and if you put that water through a charcoal filter, you can drink. It will be the, literally the best sewage treatment system in the UK. And the other thing I want to make from that, and I'll leave you with this, because I kind of want to test the idea, is that I think I want to make perfume from that water. Mostly because the perfume industry I find to be completely bizarre and obscene. I find most perfume ads to be just such bullshit. And this perfume will actually be made of shit. <laughs> and I have a feeling that that slogan alone will sell at least a thousand bottles. But anyway, thank you. We hope that conversation's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.